0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at a familiar passage. Uh, It's starting at verse 13, and we're going to look over through chapter 4, verse 11. It's the story of the baptism uh, and the temptation uh, of Jesus. It's a story uh, many of you, uh, if you've spent time in the church or if you've grown up in the church, you've undoubtedly heard this story before. But while you're turning there, let me just take a moment and say thank you for the wonderful greeting uh, that we have received over the last few days. Uh, We have felt incredibly warmly received. We have been delighted by all of the time we've gotten to spend with y'all. We've had tons and tons and tons uh, of excellent conversations uh, and it's been just really wonderful. We have been so warmly received. If we haven't gotten a chance to meet you, um, please grab me uh, after the service or after the q and I'd love to at least get a chance to say hi to you. Uh, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful greeting. And I'm excited to be here before you this morning, opening the Scriptures and thinking together about the Gospel. So let's look at the Word together. This is Matthew 3, uh, verses 13 through Matthew 4, verse 11. This is... The truest thing you will hear today. Listen to this. This is God's word for us this morning. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. This is the end of the word of the Lord. The end of the reading of the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray and ask God for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you. That you are a God who speaks. And we come to you this morning. As people who desperately need to hear a word from you. Father, open our eyes. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, send the Holy Spirit to us. Give us understanding. Show us our hearts, show us our sin, but most importantly, show us Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. This is a relatively straightforward story. There are not lots of twists and turns, there's not complicated plot twists or extended periods of dialogue or characterization. It's a relatively straightforward story, but it has absolutely profound implications for our lives. You see, at the beginning of the story in verse 13 of chapter 3, Matthew tells us that Jesus has come from Galilee to be baptized by John. Galilee was Jesus' hometown. To this point, he had just been a kind of normal guy. I say kind of because he's still the incarnate God, but he was not known as a prophet. He was not leading a ministry. He was not a public teacher. He was, by all accounts, probably a carpenter, and a carpenter from the backwaters of Israel, which was itself the backwaters of the Roman empire. So Jesus comes from his hometown and he comes to uh, the Jordan River on the edge of the Judean wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a fascinating figure in his own right. Uh, All of the Gospels talk about John the Baptist, but we meet him especially and we understand more about who he is and what he does in Luke chapter 1 where God says to his father that John the Baptist's job is going to be to gather a people and make them ready for the arrival of the Messiah. And so that's what John was doing. This baptism that John is doing is not a Christian baptism. What John is doing is he is washing people who are saying that they want to turn away from their sin and be ready because the Messiah is coming. John is washing them to set them apart for the arrival of the Christ. And so John knows who Jesus is. They are distant cousins. John knows what Jesus is. He knows that he is the Messiah. And so you can almost imagine the scene that unfolds here in this story. Jesus comes to the river where John is washing sinners, who want to be ready for the Messiah. And you can almost imagine Jesus gets in line and waits. And people in front of him are being washed and preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. And Jesus gets up to John and John is like, what are you doing? Like, Jesus, do you not understand who you are? You should be baptizing me and you want me to baptize you? And Jesus says to John, He says, John, it has to be this way now so that we can fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is saying there, what he is getting at, is that this is how my ministry starts. This is where it begins. It has to be this way now. And so John consents. He baptizes the Christ. And as Jesus leaves the river where John has been baptizing and washing people, as Jesus walks back up on the banks, the heavens are opened to him. The heavens are opened. Mark's gospel, describing the same event, says the heavens are torn open. Which brings to mind that great passage from Isaiah 64, where Isaiah cries out to God, Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. Fix all of this. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit descends and rests on Christ, a picture of His authority and of the power that He will exercise throughout His ministry, and then the voice from heaven itself. God Himself speaks from heaven, and He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's a fascinating story. And what is happening here, the the central thing that is happening is that Jesus is being set apart for his ministry. He is being washed by John and being set apart for the work that he will do as our Savior. And the heart of that work that Jesus does on our behalf is Jesus identifies with sinners. Jesus identifies with sinners. That's where his ministry starts, as he is washed in the river with sinners who are seeking to turn away from sin and follow the Messiah. It's at the end of his ministry as well, as Jesus hangs on the cross with the weight of the sins of his people on him between two thieves. From the first to the last, the work of Jesus is identifying with sinners, And that's why it's instructive to realize that in Matthew's gospel, God speaks from heaven twice. There are two times in Matthew's gospel that God speaks directly from heaven. And in both of those times, he says the exact same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says it here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And he says it in Matthew 17, on the mountain of transfiguration, as Jesus is preparing to go into Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die and atone for sins. In both places, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what I think this shows us is that Jesus goes into the beginning of his ministry and into the final and hardest and most decisive part of his ministry with the affirmation of his heavenly Father echoing in his ears. Echoing, ringing, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Friends, we all have voices that are echoing in our ears. We all have voices that say things to us about our worth and our lovability and our value. And we hear those voices when we step on the scale. We hear those voices when we look in the mirror. We hear those voices when we preach candidating sermons to new churches. We hear those voices when we check our bank accounts. We hear those voices when we aggressively merge onto the interstate. We hear those voices when we scroll social media and everyone seems to have a better life than we do. We hear those voices when our aging bodies don't do what they used to do. We hear those voices when we get performance reviews at work or report cards at school. I was talking to a friend of mine a few months ago, and he told me that his father uh, abandoned he and his mother when he was a young child. And he said, for my entire life, whenever I am with people, I am constantly asking myself, do you really want to be around me? A voice echoing in his ears, speaking to him about his worth, his lovability, and his value. And so I ask you, what is the loudest voice in your life? What is it? What is the loudest voice in your life? Is it a parent who is just sort of always vaguely disappointed in you? Or a boss who seems to always withhold praise and heap on the criticism? Is it a coworker who makes snide remarks about you? Or a teacher who said that you were never going to amount to anything? Is it a spouse who is controlling or critical of you? Is it a random stranger who makes a cruel comment about your appearance as you walk past? Is it the silent voice of an absent father? Friends, I ask these questions because we spend our lives craving the kind of affirmation that Jesus receives here from His Heavenly Father. We spend our lives craving this unconditional, this unqualified delight and acceptance and love. You are my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. We spend our lives craving people to say to us, I know you, and I love you, and I like you. And friends, what is beautiful about the gospel. What is profound about the gospel is that when we turn to Christ in faith, when we trust that Christ's atoning work on the cross was not just for people in general but for us in particular and when we turn away from sin, we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Any time in the New Testament you see the phrase in Christ That means we are united to Him, and everything that is true of Him becomes true of us. We are so united to Christ that what becomes, or what is true of the second person of the Trinity, Christ Himself, becomes true of us. And what that means here for us this morning is that this affirmation from God is ours. In Christ, This is ours in Christ, which means if you have trusted in Christ, the truest thing about you, truer than your performance reviews, truer than how you feel or how you look, the truest thing about you is that you are God's beloved child with whom he is well pleased. Friends, God knows you. God loves you. God likes you in Christ. That is God's verdict on you in Christ. One author reflecting on this said it this way. She said, as Christians, we wake each morning as those who have been baptized. We are united with Christ and the approval of the Father is spoken over us. We are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace. An identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity we will don that day. We begin beloved. We begin beloved. Beloved. Friends, because the affirmation that God speaks to Christ is true of us in Christ, and because God intends for Jesus to go into his ministry with that affirmation echoing in his ears, the same is true of us. God intends that we live our lives with his love and his delight and his acceptance ringing in our ears. He wants us to move into the things He has given us to do, knowing that He knows us, and He loves us, and He likes us. And I would argue that the essence of the Christian life, or at least a part of the essence of the Christian life, is believing that we are beloved children of God with whom he is well pleased, even and especially when it doesn't feel true. And in fact, in the second part of our passage this morning, I think Jesus illustrates for us what it looks like to cling to that affirmation, to cling to that identity in a time when it doesn't feel true. You see, if you jump down to chapter 4, Verse 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And our chapter divisions here don't actually help us make sense of the Scriptures because this happens right after the baptism. There's not days or weeks or months that pass here. Jesus is baptized. God speaks delight and acceptance over him. And then Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. Verse 2 tells us that in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days. He spent those 40 days praying and fasting and understanding and preparing for the work that would be ahead of him. And at the end of 40 days of fasting, the understatement of the century, he was hungry. I feel sorry for myself sometimes when I have to fast before medical labs in the morning. Jesus is 40 days in. He is hungry. And when Jesus is hungry, that's when Satan comes to tempt him. And look at what Satan does. Look at how Satan tempts Christ. Look at how he attacks Jesus. You see it in verses 3 and 5 in those first two temptations. He says, if you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Let Jesus, or let the angels catch you. Satan attacks the affirmation of God. Jesus at this moment is hungry. He is tired. He is thirsty and he's lonely. The affirmation of God does not feel true. If you talk to anyone who's been through Alcoholics Anonymous, they will tell you they use an acronym of when you are most susceptible to falling back into addiction, when you are most likely to turn back to alcohol. And that acronym is HALT, which stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. That is when you are at peak susceptibility to give in to temptation. Jesus has three of the four going and Satan attacks. The affirmation of God doesn't feel true. So my question for you this morning, when is it that God's affirmation doesn't feel true to you? When is it hard for you to believe that you are his beloved child with whom he is well-pleased. When is that? Is it when you're stressed out and overwhelmed by the responsibilities and all of the different things going on in your life? Is that when it's hard to believe that you're a beloved child with whom God is well-pleased? Maybe it's when you are exposed and vulnerable, when you make a mistake publicly and everyone can see what has happened. Maybe that's when it's hard to believe that you are a Beloved child with whom God is well pleased. Maybe it's when we suffer, and that could be physical, that could be emotional, that could be spiritual. As we experience sickness or as we experience just relational difficulties, maybe it's hard to believe in those moments that you are a beloved child of God and He is well pleased with you. Maybe it's when you're tempted. Maybe it's when you are tempted to do the same sin over and over again. Maybe it's when you actually sin, and then you resolve to do better, and you do the same sin again. And it's hard to believe that God could love a person like you. You are racked with shame and guilt. You see, friends, Satan always attacks what God has said is true. One commentator says it this way, he says doubt is the lever of temptation. Doubt is what gives temptation its force. Satan is always trying to attack what God has said is true and cause God's people to doubt. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus clings to what God has said is true. Jesus clings to what God said over him in his baptism, that he is a beloved child with whom God is well-pleased. And he clings, as we see even in his interactions with Satan, he clings to the promises of God's word. He believes that he is beloved and that God is well-pleased with him. And that empowers his faithfulness. That empowers him to resist temptation. That empowers him to be obedient. But friends, we miss the point of this passage. If we take this passage simply as a technique for fighting temptation. I think a lot of the times when I've heard this passage preached on or taught, the pastor has told me that that really this shows us how to fight temptation, and that is that we should uh, cite and quote Scripture uh, when we are feeling tempted. And I'm not against that. I'm not saying don't do that. That might very well be a good idea. But notice something that happens in this temptation story, and that is Satan also quotes the Bible. Friends, this is not a passage that gives us a technique for improving when we are faced with temptation, that misses, I think, the profound gospel point that is made here. The great economist Adam Smith, uh, who's most famous for his work, The Wealth of Nations, wrote a, a smaller book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in that, he says this, and this is profound. He says, mankind naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Mankind desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. And what he's getting at there is that we naturally, as human beings, want not just to be accepted despite the fact that we're awful, we want to be worthy of love. We want to be people that are desirable. We want to be people that are valued and accepted. We don't just want to be loved, we want to be lovely. And I think the point of what we see in these two stories together is that being beloved by God, believing we are beloved by God, actually makes us lovely. Friends, God not only loves us, he is making us lovely. Well, how does he do that? How does his love transform us? How does his love Make us lovely. For nearly 1,400 years, the Belgian town of Gale has been the worldwide gold standard in psychiatric care for people with profound mental illness. And what they have done literally since the 700s is they have taken people that would otherwise have been put in institutions, and instead of putting them in an an institution they place them with a host family in the town. In the town of Gale to this day, the average length of time a patient stays with a host family is 28 and a half years. This is not a small commitment. And what they have found is that placing these patients with a host family and enabling them to be part of just normal family life Creates profound progress in these patients. They show better results and better outcomes than anywhere else in the world, although nowhere else in the world feels like this is a feasible model to implement. This is the gold standard. And do you know what the secret is? You know what the key to the success is? The host families don't try to fix the patients. They just accept them. They love them. They welcome them. And in that love, in that welcome, in that care, the patients grow. They develop. They move through their illness and they improve. There was a a story I was reading about this town and uh, this guy was interviewing one of the host families. And the host uh, mother was talking to the guy who was doing the interview, and she said she had a young man who lived with her who every day would twist the buttons off his shirt. And every night, at the end of the day, she would get thread, and she would get buttons, and she would sew the buttons back on his shirt. And the guy who was interviewing said, that seems like a terrible waste of time and effort. Like, you should just get fishing line or something that he's not going to be able to break. And the woman responded, you just don't understand. You don't understand. You don't get what this is all about. Friends, there's a word for what the people in Gale are doing. There's a word for that, and it's a biblical word, and that word is grace. It's grace. And grace is not God's strategy to help fix us. Grace is not God's technique to help us realize our potential. Grace is God's posture towards us in Jesus. A posture of love and delight and acceptance. Friends, we all spend our lives twisting the buttons off our shirt in acts of sin and foolishness and God keeps looking at us And saying, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And what I hope you see this morning, and what I want to leave you with this morning, is this idea that God is always at work. God is always at work, and he is teaching us to believe that we are beloved in Christ Jesus. He is working that into our hearts and He is pushing that deep down into our bones so that that becomes not just objectively the truest thing about us, but subjectively the truest thing about us that we come to believe and understand and live in light of the fact that we are beloved children of the Heavenly Father with whom He is well pleased all because of what Christ has done. But friends, we won't understand the depth of God's love for us when he calls us beloved children. We won't understand the full depth of that until we see it in light of the cross of Jesus. See, friends, it was love that led the second person of the Trinity who was in very nature God himself to take on a human nature and to come and walk among sinners. It was love that did that. It was love that motivated the obedience of Jesus with every second, with every heartbeat, with every breath. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. It was love that motivated the obedience of Christ. It was love that sent him to the cross. And it was love that held him there. The beloved son, forsaken in judgment. It was love that motivated God the Father to pour out his wrath against all sin on Christ. And it was love that led Jesus to say with his last breath, it is finished. But friends, it was also love that raised him from the dead. It was love that rolled the stone away from the tomb. It was love that led Christ to ascend into heaven. And it was love that enthroned him at the right hand of the Father where he sits even this morning, reigning over every corner, every molecule of this universe. And he did all of that in part so that the loudest voice in your life, so that the loudest voice in your ears, so that the loudest voice in your heart would be the voice of your heavenly father saying to you, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. And friends, that love makes us lovely. It's really good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning as people with a short memory, as people quick to forget your goodness, as people quick to forget your grace. And Father, we, even as we get a hint of your acceptance and love and delight for us in Christ, we easily forget it as soon as something is hard. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us steadfast, make us rememberers. People who cling to your promise and your goodness and your affirmation of us in Christ, even and especially when it's hard. Father, let that affirmation empower our obedience. Let it shape our faithfulness. Let us be people who are pictures of your grace and your goodness in all of our lives. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your love for us in him. Make it the truest song of our hearts. Make your words over him the truest thing we hear today because it's the truest thing about us. Father, make us lovely, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.